You know, it's such a shame that it's so hard to find good, honest, legal help these days. How would a dream, cowboys? Welcome back to the HBO Boys podcast. We're going to recap and review the season finale of the HBO film noir TV series, season one, chapter eight. Directed by Tim Van Patten and written by Roland Jones, Ron Fitzgerald, and Kevin J. Hines. Three writers on this one for the first time in the show. Yeah, they needed the full team on this one to crack out the what was a mini-series finale, but now is a season finale. Thank gosh, psyched. Yeah, I mean, I loved this episode, and the ending was so perfect, probably because they thought this was the ultimate ending, and there was, like, one tiny bit towards the end where, like, oh, maybe they put this in like, a little bit later to maybe open it up for a second season. But, I mean, I'm so glad it's coming back because, I gotta say, after Westworld Season 3, which was, like, a bit of a farce, this this show was, like, just what I needed. For sure. And I'm also interested in everything else that's about to happen to HBO in the next month. The two new shows coming out, they're kind of hitting on all cylinders at the moment. I will be interested to know what you think was the add-on at the end. Also, I had some qualms about the ending. <gasps> I thought it was a really good episode. Yeah, we'll get into it. Uh, but also, a side, a side, side, side note, the way I know this show is more popular than when it started is the first episode's thread on Reddit had like 10 comments the next day. The finale, the day or two after it aired, has 700 comments, which is perfect, because now I can use all of the other people's jokes and observations as my own, which, to be fair, is on brand. Very nice. Plagiarism. Yeah. The best writers just outright steal. Aaron Sorkin, Ryan Brady, Michael Scott. Before we jump into the recap, just a reminder to all our listeners that if you like the show and you'd like to get bonus content or you'd like to chat with Ryan and I for just a dollar a month on our Patreon, you get access to our premium stream with two bonus episodes a month and our patrons-only Discord where you can chat live with us and we'll shout you out as thanks at the end of every show. I just put up a trailer reaction, a video, so it's outside of the audio medium. I know. I just put up a video on the Patreon of my trailer reaction to one of the shows we're going to do in the near future, Raised by Wolves, the Ridley Scott-produced vehicle. And I'm excited about a trailer video. Perry Mason, James and Ryan, finale, other words. Let's go. The episodes begin with, basically, we see the resolution of what happened at the end of Chapter 7 with Birdie and the baby. She's now patched up at home. And she's got this fake Charlie baby that she has to care for. And Emily and Alice are missing in action. Birdie is a dastardly bitch. I don't like she I I guess we talked about the whole season. Like, will she be on the stand? Will they make her confess? And by they, I mean Perry. Nope. Nope. She's just going to be awful, like by herself in her corner. Emily, it turns out, is hiding out with Della and Hazel at their boarding house. She confesses to Della that she has just completely given up on the trial and any chance of redemption. And she really regrets that both Della and everyone in the city only know her as this crazy, terrible mother when she doesn't think that that is actually the truth. 
Listen, they didn't convict Casey Anthony. I think Emily is going to be fine. We cut to Perry putting Ennis on the stand. Ennis pins the story of how, oh, he was just coincidentally at the Elks Lodge next to the drop-off. That's why he was the first one on the scene. Then Perry picks apart the story of mousy George Gannon doing the double murder and then for some reason driving home to kill himself. Also putting them all in Denver at the same time putting him and the milkmaid at the hotel, how the baby died due to heroin-infused milk, and then Hamburglar stands up, the assistant district attorney, I, who I lovingly call Hamburglar, because, I don't, because of course, his name is Hamilton Burger. Like, that was the point, right? There's no way they did that, and they weren't like, you guys know it's Hamburger, right? Right? But then the scene dissolves. It turns out it was just like an Alan Ball-esque fantasy sequence. The first that we've gotten in the show so far. An odd decision to put the first kind of scene like this in the what was originally a series finale. But right on. I'm here for it. And the best part about this scene is that it ends when the Hamburglar stands up and yells at Perry. No one confesses on the stand, Perry. Stop trying to make him do that, (laughs) which if y'all don't know, is exactly how every episode of the original 1950s show ends. I love that callback. And, oh, that's so good. Right, yeah, that was awesome. Because, like, you'd have to know the old show to get that joke. Right. It made me feel superior, which is fun. You also talked about the Perry Mason effect, which was that, you know, people going into the courthouse would think like, oh, I got this. I just don't have to confess on the stand and I win. Oh, my God. What episode was that that we did? Was that the cast and crew preview? Everyone should go listen to that. James dies at the end, like metaphorically. After the rehearsal, Berger criticizes the idea of putting Ennis on the stand at all and thinks that it would probably just undermine the good work that Perry's already done and maybe make him look weak. And Paul agrees. He's like, you don't have what you need. And if you don't have it, don't bother. Della thinks that instead they ought to put Emily on the stand. But nobody thinks that's a good idea. Perry and Paul and, and Hamilton and Berger all shoot that down. But to be fair, Della's kind of been hitting a thousand at this point. Doing amazing work. Coming up with great ideas. So maybe she's right again. I enjoyed watching Drake help out Perry and also be on the side of reason and logic. The Hamburglar's like, this room is devoid of logic. I'm going to leave. Good day to you. And Perry's straight up unhinged, just screaming, so frustrated that he's probably going to lose. And he reacts to Della when she says, you know, I prepped Emily. I already did the work for you. And then Perry is mean to Della. What a dick. Perry basically accuses Della of having, like, a self-righteous chip on her shoulder, and she only wants to help Emily because she's a feminist and a lesbian. It's like, when Perry's angry, he's a terrible friend. Like, (laughs) Right, which I'm fine with, honestly. He has awful PTSD. He's not a great guy. Like, he's never proven himself to have a moral compass of a completely devout human being whose only purpose is to be nice and good so when he is mean to his friends which by the way you know he shouldn't be it feels realistic you know everyone's been mean to their friends and been like oh fuck i gotta apologize to my friends i fucked up dale is really hurt by this and she leaves saying that she'll prep the questions in case perry decides to come around and stop being a dick right she's a goddamn pro still doing her goddamn job 
Meanwhile, Paul is calling his wife, who you can tell by her voice is like not pleased with any of this. Claire is really disappointed that Paul seems to be sacrificing his career for a case that they're about to lose anyway. And as Paul hangs up, he's like circling classified ads for a new job. So I think it's important to point out, at least for the context of this podcast, the entire season we've been hypothesizing that both Clara and Pete Strickland wouldn't make it to the end of the miniseries when it was one and season when it is now because they're not in the original show. Right. It felt like narratively they were setting them up to be dead by the end. And I, we can talk about Clara now. She's live. She's live. She's alive. Completely. Right. We so we were wrong on that count. Completely uh, wrong. We were so sure about her and Pete. I mean, s- spoilers for the end of this recap. Neither one of them die. No. Uh, or and it's not even teased that they no, might. Like, at all. <laughs> Clara, I'm fine with. Pete, uh, I, we can talk about it when we get there, but it's a whole other thing. But you know what? Collectively, we were both right because... In a sense, if you want to look at it like that there were one or two dongs in the whole show, either one, then Ryan or I was correct about that. That's a really solid point, and I'm glad you brought it up, James. There was one dong that was on an alive person, Fatty Arbuckle, or whatever his name was, and the one other dong on a dead person. So it is a bit of a gray dongage area. Everybody wins. Perry meets with Pete and all but begs him to come back on the case, but cannot bring himself to apologize because he's such an asshole. <laughs> and then at the end, asks him to do one more thing. And Pete Pete does straight up say, he's like, you're really just going to skip the apology, huh? But okay, I'll do it. <laughs> right. Flashback to the night of the kidnapping. Matthew leaves a nice dinner that Emily is prepared to go and gamble because he sucks. Sucks totally, completely. Bye, Matt. Bye. Leaving Emily all alone to take care of a baby, which if you, if you have a one-year-old baby, like, it's pretty tough to do as a single person. So it's like Matthew's a terrible husband and father. This leaves time for her to get on the phone with George Gannon. And then we port forward. And this has all been her on the stand. So this is the second time where a scene has started, but something different than what the scene was was happening in one episode. Right. Too many writers on this episode, maybe. I mean, the writers are the creators of the show. What are you going to do? Emily explains in her testimony that Matthew was an absentee husband and father, which contributed to driving her into George's arms because George showed her the attention and respect that she was lacking. But it was all a deception, and George used this connection with her to keep her on the phone while the kidnappers invaded her home and stole Charlie. Oh my god. I feel so terrible for her. Because Perry leads her right to the point of it, which is like, yeah, George was also bad. My husband sucked. George sucked. My son's dead. Nobody loved you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The whole courtroom seems really sympathetic, including the jury. Everyone seems like they're about to cry. Barnes gets up and does what he's been doing the whole case and just slut shames Emily. And he gets her to admit that she told george gannon about matthew's connection to herman baggerly he begins to badger emily and eventually manipulates her into admitting that her actions directly or indirectly led to charlie's kidnapping but maynard barnes keeps singing the same old song like it's not a strong song at this point 
No, he thinks this is such a slam dunk. It's a bit of hubris. As Emily's being led from the courtroom, a mysterious man in a suit passes her an envelope. And I, at first I thought like, oh God, this, this someone's going to shoot her. I was assuming she was about to get stabbed by that guy. Also outside, Ennis and Holcomb confront Perry. Ennis is gloating and laughing as he remembers Perry's opening statement where he said he was going to catch the original killer. And this provokes Perry to punch him in the face. And then Holcomb pins Perry down and threatens to kill him. Or have him murdered. (laughs) I think this is one of the best scenes in the finale. It made me hate Ennis more. It made Holcomb a more complicated character. You recall that he is not exactly excited that Ennis did all of this, but he's more self-serving. He's afraid for his own career. And he threatens Perry not only for Ennis's sake, but more so for his own sake. Uh, Just an overall great scene. Love that stuff. Later that night... Lupe meets with Perry and tries to give him now 7 dollars $1,000 more than she originally offered him, to make things right about him having lost his house. And Perry, again, like, absolutely no grace, refuses to accept the money, says that he's going to abuse the legal system to forestall the sale of the home, just to fuck her over. An actual dink. So stupid. His rage is blinding him, and also, you know, like... His dead parents and the legacy he doesn't believe he's fulfilled. And he's a complicated character, James. Right, And Lupe right now is like trying to reconcile. She's not just trying to like make things right in terms of the house. She's like trying to get whatever relationship they had back. And Perry's just like, no, once I'm angry at someone, it, nothing matters. Like, Yeah, you're dead to me. Goodbye. You could be buried next to my parents right now for all I give a shit. Totally exasperated, Lupe tells him that the airfield business is really competitive and it's even harder on her being a Mexican woman in Los Angeles and that she really needs to look out for herself and, you know, giving this justification walks away. And again, like, Perry, no sympathy, no empathy, no understanding. But it was a great (laughs) argument from her. You felt sympathetic for Lupe in that moment. You're like, God, she is, she's fighting uphill. And Perry's like, I don't give a shit. No, I'm pissed off that my derelict house is going to get torn down, even though it was already kind of slowly falling down. I don't need to pay taxes. The system doesn't apply to me, Lupe. At Della's boarding home, Emily's having dinner with the other boarders, and she opens an envelope that she got, and it's a ink footprint press of a baby's foot, presumably a new Charlie's foot. Enticing her to perhaps go see new Charlie... She looks up and says, did Perry say I did a good job? Don't to which lies. they were all like, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, obviously, he did it. He just walked away. But they're like, yeah, no, no, he totally, he totally did. I was like, it is odd. Not odd. I just felt so bad for Emily, like, needing Perry's approval in that moment. Perry tries to write his closing statement. At first, he's trying to write, like, a fiery indictment of Barnes and the system. But it's, like, not going that well. When a picture of Charlie falls off of his bulletin board, he's inspired to write a more personal closing statement, which makes Charlie, the victim, kind of the centerpiece of uh, his arguments. This is the last Perry Mason episode, so it's the last time that I can bring this up. Uh, The music in this scene, the music in this episode, the music in this show is so goddamn good. In his closing remarks, Perry gives this moving statement about his heartfelt desire to avenge Charlie. And at first, he was motivated by, like, a 
righteous indignation and desire for revenge, but now he's kind of softened his approach, and he understands now that it's more about getting justice for Charlie than it is about punishing any one person. And aside from being a great closing argument, this is also just, like, an amazing way to show Perry's character growth. Like, he understands that he's, like, an angry person, that the law is dispassionate, or at least it's meant to be, right? This was just, like, a really great scene. Amazing writing. If Matthew Reese wins an Emmy, it will be for this speech, right? And he's basically asking the jury, you know, you know who I am. Believe in me. And due to your belief in me, believe in the case that I am making. Hamilton Berger is impressed. Perry Mason has arguably risen to the occasion. An improbable rise. Della is crying. Emily is crying. Where the fuck is Sister Alice, by the way? That's what entered my mind during this. Is, is During that. It was like, Drake is not crying, but like he's getting into it. I don't know what Pete's doing. But the fact that Della liked it is really all I needed. Perry ends by trying to appeal to the jury's sense of righteous justice and telling them to disregard the bloodthirsty anger that Barnes is trying to provoke. He also points out that Barnes has really proven nothing. He's only assassinated Emily's character the entire trial. And then her baby Barnesies is up. <laughs> and makes one more pass at assassinating Emily's character. He just said the same shit. Again, singing that same old song and dance. Idiot. We cut to three days later at night. Perry is asleep in the gallery, waiting for the jury to come out with their deliberation. Della brings him a sandwich, and he apologizes, and they make up. So it does kind of go to show that, like, Perry is kind of realizing, like, oh, yeah, I push people away because I'm an angry, selfish person, but people are trying to help me and do the right thing, uh, and that's not a good way to be. Right. He couldn't apologize to Pete. But he found a way to apologize to Della. If I was Pete, I'd be pissed. He says he likes Hazel. Della calls Hazel a pip, which is just goddamn. Yeah, I I'm not up on my 1930s lingo. What is a pip? Attractive and fun. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, Ryan, you're a hey pip. James. You're a pip. The jury goes home for the night, so nothing will be decided now. Cut to Paul walking into the police commissioner's office. He's missed five days of work. The commissioner's like, where have you been? What have you been doing? And Paul's like, I was busy, Joe. Hey, don't call me Joe. I'm the commissioner. (laughs) I loved that. He's like, whatever. Anyway, here's my gun, my badge, the money. Fuck you. I'm out. After five days, the court resumes to hear the jury's decision. The judge has passed a note from the jury foreman that says, we tried our best. And then the, the judge reports, it's a hung jury. They couldn't come to a decision. Reporters are, like, racing out of the court to get this on the line. And the judge declares a mistrial. So Emily is saved. Della and Perry rush to her to embrace. She's totally, like, in disbelief. And Perry, this was a great moment. Perry, now very emotional, puts his files away into E.B.'s briefcase. Barnes is so mad. Matthew is so mad. Barnes looks at the jury so pissed off, like, look what you did to me. I wish Herman Baggardly got a look in this scene, but that's okay, whatever. And then they go out onto the steps. And if I said before the Innis Holcomb Perry scene was maybe the best in the episode, but nah, nah, I think this is actually it, where 
they go back and forth between Barnes talking to reporters and Perry talking to reporters, and it goes differently for them. Yeah, Barnes is like absolutely like first trying to be like, ha, it's fine, you know, we're just gonna we're gonna try again, but then he just like loses his shit because he's asked some uncomfortable questions about his political aspirations. Perry plays it totally cool, doesn't even act like he's psyched, just acts like he's like pissed off and he's indicting the system and the prosecution and the police and just comes off looking great. Barnes intimates that it was the woman juror's fault that this <laughs> happened. Jesus Christ, dude. Perry is still shouting. Emily looks at Matthew as he leaves. Fuck that guy. Perry yells at Holcomb over the crowd. Like, hey, where was he today? Keeping that blue line for him? And I was like, Jesus, Perry is bold as fuck. That is awesome. Later on, uh, perhaps the next day in the early hours of the morning, Peter meets with one of the jurors and gives him a bribe as payment for basically ruining the trial and (laughs) causing a hung jury. Right. But then it turns out it wasn't even necessary because he was one of three jurors who would not come to a unanimous decision. So, like, two people did it out of principle, and uh, Perry paid off this guy for nothing. So Perry took the money from selling the farm to buy off the juror that he didn't even have to do in the first place. And so, which means Perry... Basically won the case by himself. And we should say that what he, Perry did is is a very serious crime <laughs> he could go to jail for years for. Yeah. Do you think 1950s Perry Mason would have done something like this? I mean, 1950s Perry Mason was like also like fabricating evidence and, right. and impeding justice all the time. Exactly. So. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> it's on brand. At Della's boarding house, the defense team is celebrating, although Emily really doesn't look that pleased. There's no. like a song on the radio, I forget, but they keep saying, like, hello, my baby, hello, my right. honey, hello, my the dead baby. The word baby is said too many times <laughs> for Emily to be psyched. She has cake in front of her. She's not eating cake like an insane person. Cake is great, and she doesn't even want any of it, so she's sad. Meanwhile, across town, her first attorney, Frank, is just eating an entire cake. Yeah. Unrelated Oh, my to God, cake. I forgot Oops. about that guy. That guy sucks. <laughs> Perry meets outside with Pete for a smoke. Pete congratulates him. And then says that uh, their professional relationship is over because Pete is going to work as a special investigator for Hamilton Burger at the DA's office. So, we all thought, and by all I mean you and me, (laughs) that Pete Strickland was going to die. And he didn't die. He just switched sides. Which is a form of death. And also it kind of seems like him and Perry's friendship is probably over, which is sad because Pete was like Perry's mentor. And and Pete was, along with Della, Pete was pretty much like invaluable to this case. And they probably couldn't have, you know, achieved this without him. No, definitely not. The Denver stuff that Pete got was crazy, specifically great. And now Pete's gone, going to work with the Hamburglar. So... Season two, most likely Perry and Paul Drake and Della versus the Hamburglar and Pete Strickland. And Holcomb. Holcomb in the original novels is like Perry's rival in the police force, like trying to, you know, keep him away from from helping his defendants. Exactly. I felt weird, though. I've wanted Pete Strickland to die. I wanted. (laughs) You just wanted to be right. No, I, uh, yes. Well, I say no, but yes, I wanted to be right. But at the same time, I'm sorry to bring this up, 
But the reason that the first four to five seasons of Game of Thrones is the best television ever made, in my opinion, is because there were consequences to actions. And a whole lot of the time, the consequences were out there a bit. You didn't see them coming. They were both surprising. But as they happened, you'd be like, yeah, that does make sense for that person to die in this moment. I felt like there needed to be more consequences for other than, you know... Emily definitely not getting her resurrected baby back, but like we didn't assume that was going to happen. No, you know what? I am happy that that neither Pete nor Clara died because that makes the entire story a bit less melodramatic and more true to life. I'm not really demanding that, you know, characters be sacrificed in order to raise the stakes. I just kind of want the story to progress in a way that is not predictable. And for me, this season of Perry Mason really came through on that front. I really didn't see any of this coming. The idea that the case ended on a mistrial that Perry set up at the last minute. Like, to me, someone might say, like, oh, that's a cop-out. That means, like, none of it mattered. It's like, no. It was just like a curveball that I, I, I don't think anyone probably saw coming. And... I think if Ennis had, like, caught up with Pete and killed him and then Pete's death had been the motivator for Perry to, like, I don't know, put everything together and get Ennis to confess on the stand, that would be, like, the more stereotypical Hollywood ending, in my opinion. I wanted everyone to be dead, and I wanted that ending. That ending sounds dope. I'm the devil. Emily goes to see Bertie. Alice is totally gone and cannot be found. Bertie presents Emily with the new Charlie, and Emily knows right away this is not her child, but she takes... Oh, the moment this happened, I was like, God damn it. James is never going to let me hear the fucking (laughs) end of this shit. I'm so stupid. But this was a great scene. Emily, she knows it's not Charlie, but she takes comfort in in holding the baby. And I got to say, you know, we have a lot of fun on this show. We're very lighthearted and jokey. Jesus. What are you about to say? In all the shows that we've watched, all the movies that we've watched for this podcast, this was the only scene where I felt, like, really emotional to the point of choking up. Really? Emily's story is so tragic, and her life is so ruined. And, like, even, you know, being declared, not even innocent, but having it end in a mistrial and her life being saved, it's, like, almost meaningless to her. Because in the last episode, she's like, I don't care, I just want to die anyway. And to just, like, to see this moment of redemption for her... And even though, like, Birdie is evil and may even be been complicit in what happened, like, the fact that something good can come to Emily from all of this and, you know, just her reuniting with, with a baby and also, like, the scene of her and you can see how gentle she was, you know, with the original Charlie, it, was, it made me a bit emotional. Yeah, I'm sure the mother of this stolen baby feels the same way. I assume it's an orphan. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, you assume. You know, that's so funny that you got choked up. Like, I wrote, she seems psyched to have a baby anyway. Emily cries. Moving on. We get a couple scenes very quickly. We see Pete cooperating with D.A. Berger to give testimony against the church because Perry uncovered a litany of financial crimes, at least, that they committed. But investigating to those, maybe they can get closer to the truth, even though Seidel is gone. No, but I believe Brown was on trial there. Ah, okay. Yeah, well, Brown's dick, and I hope he goes to jail. Me too. We then see Birdie, Emily, and new Charlie collecting money at a small traveling church revival 
with the gimmick of like, oh, it's the resurrected baby. So like, Birdie basically skates away from this situation. You know, apparently, you know, she probably lost all of her her wealth, and she has to start from square one. But she also oh, is kind of like scot free. Poor Birdie. Yeah, Emily looks dead inside, taking care of her new stolen baby. No, I thought Emily looked fine. She looked, her eyes were dead to the world, and Birdie is now the minister and the center of attention like she's always wanted to be in the first place. You right, have you an optimism. Have, you you, well, you, you and I have optimism. different takes on, 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 yes, on the ending of Emily's story. <laughs> right, yes. You have an implied optimism because you have a closer, perhaps it's because you have children and I do not. I, I was like, that is a dead inside woman taking care of a stolen baby who is now the shill of a traveling church. What an awful life. And you're like, she's so psyched and happy to be a mommy again. (laughs) The way that I, the way, no, the way I see it, like, yeah, her life has been destroyed, but she is able to, I don't know, by like the grace of God or whatever, if you want to look at it that way, uh, rebuild something back for herself. Mm -hmm. I mean, she lost her husband. She lost her lover. She lost her child. You would think this is a person who's, you know, got got nothing left to live for, but now she's found something. Listen, I'm glad that she has a semblance, a shred of happiness. I'm not, like, naysaying that she shouldn't be happy. I'm just saying, like, there's a context to said happiness that I believe matters, and it's a stolen baby, which I think can't be left out of the conversation. Or an adopted orphan. We don't know. Oh, my God. It is not an adopted (laughs) orphan. It was stolen from a park bench. You know it. (laughs) Perry takes over EB's office officially, and he signs a new contract with Della that makes her a junior partner and includes a fund for her to pay her way through night school because she wants to be a lawyer as well. She's negotiating. When she's done, it's going to be called Mason and Street and Paul Drake is there like, okay, well, we have a client outside if you guys can stop like bickering at each other, which this is cool. I like the Mason and Street thing. I'm not a huge fan of how it's changing history. Right. If it does occur. They're retconning the 1950 show that we've seen three episodes of and that means a lot to us. Yes. <laughs> Oddly enough, it is precious to me. And I don't know. Like if they do change it, I'm like, fine. Because Della is a goddamn boss and she's the MVP of the season, and Juliet Rylance did an amazing job. So make her a quote-unquote lady lawyer, As and then she goes, no, there's no modifier needed. Perry, how dare you? Paul also brings Perry an expense list for a PI job that he's currently working on for him, showing that now Paul is involved in Perry's office as well. So we got the makings of, of the Wonder Team here. Drake then again reminds them we have a woman outside. Della says her name is Eva Griffin, then she looks phony to Della. Drake, by the way, also finds an address that he slips to Perry about something that is not part of the Eva Griffin storyline. It's the Twin Oaks Diner in Camel, California. And Eva walks in. She looks like a well-to-do white lady. And fun facts, Eva Griffin is a character from the first Perry Mason book. So a lot of payoff if you are a Perry Mason fan of the books and the the old shows i don't i don't know any but i'm sure there are a lot of like 70 year old perry mason fans who are like so psyched no but there was a line she's in trouble and she can pay the retainer 
that was very reminiscent of the 1950s show where Perry Mason's like, oh, perfect, they can pay. That's like the only thing they need to be able to do. We cut to the desert casino from many episodes ago. The mob boss owner passes out bribes to Holcomb and Ennis as their form of, I don't know, this month's hush money or whatever. Holcomb, very shadily, he's like, you know, Ennis, uh, I'd like to think that if anything happened to me, you'd look after my family. And Ennis is like, yeah, sure, where are you going with this? Well, don't worry, because I feel the same way, and I'm going to look out for your family after I have you murdered right now. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I I felt like, and this is not a pun, I felt like this was a bit of a cop-out. It kind of <laughs> sucks. It was, didn't feel like justice to me. It's just one shitty cop covering his own ass by killing the other cop. It didn't. It didn't feel satisfying, the way that NS died at all to me to me that's again like more realistic in real life you don't always get everything you wanted out of a situation and you, you don't always get nothing that you wanted out of a situation life is half measures and compromises right yeah but this is not life this is entertainment where satisfaction is the premium currency and you know i'm not jerking off to realism over here i'm just like i want ennis to die in a satisfying way and getting drowned in mexico by three strangers is while holcomb watches wasn't exactly the way i wanted it to go i'm glad he's dead this is very similar to i'm glad emily is happy yeah, they drown him in the fountain, the friend's fountain that, that Perry and, and Lupe danced in uh, yeah. so many episodes ago. That was pretty cool. I'm glad that happened. I like that. Perry goes to eat in a little diner somewhere far outside the city when a black-haired waitress walks in and oh, it's Alice, finally free of her mother, living a simple life. That was cool. Birdie said there was a sighting in Albuquerque of Sister Alice, but that's obviously not true. Which means that Sister Alice did a very good job. Perry and Alice go to speak on the edge of the beach. And Perry has some questions for her. Like, you know, who took the boy's body out of the casket? He shows her what Emily and her mother is doing. Alice says something to the effect of, you want to believe in God. You want to believe in the church. You want to be with someone, but you won't. We will always both be alone. Why is that? Like, they're both kindred spirits. And Perry's reply is, like, after everything that happened, that you made this church trying to help people, and it ended up, like, destroying Emily's life and getting a baby murdered. Like, how can you possibly still believe in God? And so they kind of have a connection over their mutual solitude, but they have this difference that they just cannot reconcile. As Alice walks away, Perry says, did you really think you could bring Charlie back? And then she says, I did, didn't I? Intimating that the truth doesn't in fact matter. But she said that, I was like, I mean, no. No, you didn't. She kisses Perry goodbye, and as she's walking away, Perry takes out the matchbox that he's been carrying since episode one with the thread from Charlie's corpse, and he lets it, he blows it away and lets it fall into the sea. And the episode ends, and, and... The fucking 1950s Perry Mason theme starts playing, and I was so, so fucking rad. hyped, and I was like, what a good ending. Having the song play at the end was the highlight of the ending for me, uh, that, I, I suppose we shall, we shall get into this. Y yeah, your, your vibe, what is your letter grade for the finale, and then letter grade for the 
season of television. People don't know, I'm just now beginning my tenure as a full-time professor, and uh, I feel qualified now to give this show straight A's. Wow. I really do. I loved this show. I mean, I love this genre of film noir. I love old-timey shit in general. My favorite episode of Watchmen is the one that took place in the 30s. Mm. And I, to me, this ending was damn near perfect. And and as I said, like, I don't know, you were saying you wanted something a bit more satisfying, a bit more cohesive, where everything's kind of tied together and everyone gets everything they deserved. I kind of like this more ambiguous, or I would argue more nuanced approach to ending the story, where, like, you know... It's messy and it's inconclusive. It's like, where's Charlie's body? We're never going to know. The thread, he's been holding it the whole time. He thought he was going to find like a thread factory, which was going to break the case or whatever, something. It never happened, you know? And, and that's, that's in these kind of unsolved crimes. It's those kind of hanging threads that really draw you in and, and captivate you. And, and that's what I, I really liked about this show is the ambiguity, the tolerance of ambiguity. If you know what I mean. I don't. You can take your scarf and your beret and your cigarette on the end of one of those long cigarette holder things that Cruella DeVille has. And you can take your pretentious version of nuance and stick it up your butthole, James. I wanted, I didn't want, I wanted explosions. I yeah, Ryan explosions. wanted this show to end Perry and Ennis in a car chase through the streets of LA. Yeah. And then, you know. It ends up, uh, Ennis crashes his car, and he crawls to the end of a pier, and Perry's like, you really thought you'd get away with it, Ennis? And Ennis is like, you can't kill me, you know what'll happen to the rest of the police force, I'll never let you go. And Perry's like, I died in France. Blam, blam! (laughs) Yeah, this is justice now. Uh, And then, yeah, and then... And this falls into the Pacific Ocean. Obviously, that's a joke. I don't really want that exactly. I just kind of wanted Ennis to die in a way that wasn't in a fountain in Mexico. The Sister Alice part is actually the more upsetting one. Where I'm glad that she's happy. I'm glad that she's out of the life. I just felt like the last scene with her and Perry was a little odd. I'm glad that they got to the point where they understood each other, it felt like. But when Perry throws the thread into the ocean and Sister Alice walks away scot-free, it was just a little eye-rolly for me. And by the way, I will say, I give the first season of Perry Mason a B+. I really, really enjoyed it. It was great. I think Watchmen was better. I think the first four to five seasons of Game of Thrones was better. I think the first season of Perry Mason was better than season three of Westworld and season two of Westworld. I think season one of Westworld was better. Actually, you know what would be interesting? Like season one of Westworld as opposed to season one of Perry and as opposed to season one of Watchmen. I'm going to have to put some thought into that around there. Because I thought the finale of Perry Mason was like a B minus. C plus. Like, I really enjoyed parts of it. The part where Perry Mason is screaming over the crowd at Holcomb as he walks away is goddamn, that's satisfying. That is goddamn delightful. Uh, it was just uh, some parts at the end that, you know, left something to be desired for me. But that's the great thing about this now. If it was a miniseries, I'd be pissed. But uh, it's not. It's season one. We got more time with these characters. I'm excited to get back to it. 
five years from now when the coven laden production is back in business and pumping out episodes i liked this show better than every season of westworld and i even liked it better than watchmen which i love this has been my favorite show that we have covered on the hbo boys podcast and i am intending to watch this season a second time with my wife when it gets an official release in korea which it probably will later this year but usually the hbo shows come to korea on a different network hbo doesn't exist over here they come on a different network a few months later uh, with subtitles, I, I'm probably gonna watch it again at that point. That's really cool. I, I, listen, I'm glad for you. I think it's my third favorite show. The first being the first season of Westworld. The second being the first season of Watchmen, and the third being this first season of Perry Mason. I guess I don't account that we watched the eighth season of Game of Thrones and while right, Game was, of Thrones was that even TV or yeah. uh, no? It was sad, <laughs> it had actors like, in it. I guess it did, and and I suppose directors barely writers. But the point is, like, Game of Thrones is one of my favorite TV shows of all time. It's just, I don't put the season eight part of that show up there with the quality of all the stuff that we've been watching recently. And either way, like, I'm just glad HBO is taking swings, man. I'm here for all the swings that they're taking. And I'm down for Mason and Street and Associates, your goddamn retcon. I'm here for it. There's a lot of, you know, now that we've wrapped up the these two months we had with Perry Mason... A lot of good shit on the horizon coming up. There was there's Raised by Wolves. Right, that's four weeks from now, September third. Which is a sci uh, like a high sci-fi, kind of epic sci-fi story that based on the trailer I I couldn't glean too much about what it's actually about. It seems like it's a lot of different strange sci-fi conventions put together. The IMDB description is androids are tasked with raising human children on a mysterious planet which all right sounds cool and that's not on hbo right no that is september 3rd on hbo okay i thought that was maybe on showtime but i'm confused yep it's gonna be a thursday night show okay so that's coming in a month thursday nights on hbo then there is another show Coming next week on HBO, Lovecraft Country, and I'm a huge fan of the works of H.P. Lovecraft and of cosmic horror in general, so I'm pretty excited to check that show out as well. That is the new Sunday night show at 9 p.m., executive produced by Jordan Peele and our boy J.J. Abrams. And, you know, it's still early. Day August just started, but in October, there's going to be a miniseries on Showtime starring Ethan Hawke called Good Lord Bird about the the John Brown Rebellion, which I don't know if you've seen the trailer for that, but that show looks great too. No, I haven't. That's cool. A lot of good stuff coming out. A lot of original stuff coming out. Not, you know, when's the next season of anything coming? Nobody knows. Right. Truly nobody. No, I mean, The Witcher season two just got back into it. Which I, that's, I, I think, what show's next season are you looking forward to the most? And I will say mine right off the bat, I think mine is Witcher season two. 
I have just recently finished The Mandalorian, and I liked it a whole lot. Yeah. So I'd like to yeah. see season two of that. I really yeah. want to see season two of Perry Mason, but I do hope Me they too. take their time. I was really looking forward to watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier this month. It was supposed to come out this week, but the very tail end of production was hampered due to Corona, and it's been pushed back to some non-definite fall deadline. But I, I, I still want to see that. And the other Marvel original programming, but who knows when any of that's happening. Oh, Sam and I just ran through season two of Umbrella Academy. So I don't, I I know that shit is not going to be out. It hasn't even been renewed yet for season three, but whenever that comes out, I'm so on board. I love that goddamn show. Anyway, we're just, we're just Jones and we're just geeking out about TV right now. And it's, but yeah, Perry Mason. Good stuff. Yeah, we usually take a one-week break at the end of a series, but we just had a one-week break due to a hurricane, so... I feel quiet. Just a moment. We will be back next week with something that we're still thinking about. Hamilton. Right? I mean, yeah. What are you talking about? (laughs) Like, either we'll start with the first episode of, of Lovecraft Country, which comes out next week, or we'll be doing something else. Sure. Yeah, I like how vague that is. That's positive. Well, you know, if you've got good ideas of what you'd like to hear, hit us up on Twitter. He's Westworld Ryan. I'm at James Watches Men. We want to thank you for listening. If you're just listening, it means a lot. If you want to go the extra mile, you can follow us on Twitter. He's at Westworld Ryan. I'm at James Watches Men. You can review us on any of the relevant podcast apps. Or it really helps if you would just pass around the show by word of mouth. If you've got friends who enjoy HBO or they enjoy any of the shows that we have played in the past, let them know we've got a huge back catalog. You can also support the show monetarily by kicking in a dollar or more on Patreon, which, as I mentioned earlier, gets you bonus content. You can chat with Ryan and I, and Ryan will shout out your names at the end of each and every episode. You just mentioned our Twitter names twice, which means they have to follow us, right? Like... It's kind of like an unwritten rule if you say it two times. Any who's else? The Patreon patrons are Branko, Harbaugh, Greg, Nicole, Day 11 Podcast, James, Watch My Dong. Uh, I, I I watched it yesterday, not today. Mm, I did it right this time. I said it right. Isn't that positive? Yeah, and I, I came right away with something to say. I know. We're hitting on all cylinders. It only took us eight episodes. Cliff Wilding, hello underscore yo, James Christopher, atheism and sounds unstoppable. Chris Wood, Grentgen, Day 11 Westworld, Carol, Andreas, Craig, Bachman, John Jurors, and Major Woody. Thank you all for your money. I want to send a special shout out to John Jurz, our lifetime most money person. He sent us the most money all time. Thanks, John Jurz. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, to all of our patrons, thank you very much for your dedication. Uh, as I mentioned in the last episode, we just renewed our SoundCloud unlimited fee, which is what like a hundred and twelve dollars a year. It's more than that, but... <laughs> All right, which is a good deal of money, and what it does is it allows us to keep our back catalog up in perpetuity for everyone to listen to for free, and so if you've been taking advantage of that, spare a thought for our kindly benefactors. Or listen for free. All I need really is attention. And join us here next week. We will be doing something, and then also I think we are due for bonus content. Ryan uploaded something this week, and so in two more weeks he'll get something else. That's true. You're right. As always, I'm James, and I'm Ryan, and, and this I'm the devil. 
in the HBO Boys Podcast. Yeah, we should do a full bonus episode where we're just role-playing with me being the devil and you being the angel. And the it'll basically be Good Omens, the podcast. But with the caveat of I'd really like you to talk me into being an angel by the end and me to talk you into being the devil and have our voices change over time. This is me just like pitching a podcast idea. Oh. You know, I had a really good idea for something that's totally too late and irrelevant now. The week that we missed the episode, we should have unlocked the relationship advice episode oh, as, on the main feed. Wouldn't that have been a good idea for a thing to do? Sure would have. I should have thought sure. of that a week ago. Oh, man, that would have been a tight idea a week ago. <laughs> well, fuck. Anyway. All right. Bye, everybody. Goodbye.